1: Hello and welcome to American Muslim Project, I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. Yeah. My guest today is Jawad Asin, author of the book, What They Didn't Tell Me, How to Be a Resilient Leader and Build Teams You Can Trust. The book shares stories and lessons from his life in corporate America, from his first job out of college at General Electric to his current position at Axon. Axon is one of those companies that you might not have heard of, but you certainly know their two main products, the Taser and the body cam, which are used in police agencies across the country. In 2017, at the age of 37, Jawad joined the company as CFO, and during his tenure, the value of the company has grown seven times to $7 billion. In What They Didn't Tell Me, Jawad tells readers why charting their own course not only changes how others view you, it also changes how you view yourself and helps you become a resilient leader. Jawad, thanks for joining American Muslim Project. Really appreciate your time. My first question to you is, can you just tell us a little bit about Axon and what your role is as CFO?
2: Sure. So Axon was founded in 1993 as Taser and the company was known for a long time as Taser International. Today, we've morphed beyond that. We now do body cameras. We have software as well that we uh, developed for law enforcement. And we're expanding beyond law enforcement pretty quickly into the federal market, into you know the enterprise space. And really, our mission as a company is to protect life and our vision long-term is to make the bullet obsolete. That was the thing that Rick said to me, Rick is our CEO, Rick Smith. When he told me that that's his mission in life to make the bullet obsolete, I just really connected with that. And I'm a big believer in obviously ending gun violence. And I just don't believe that we we as humans need weapons that blow hot lead balls into each other. There are other ways to stop people from whatever it is you want to you know, stop them doing. And so I'm the CFO. I've been here since 2017. And one of the things I talk about in my book is this idea of defining your North Star. When I did that in like 2009 or so, it was to run a business. And the proxy for that was a CEO, but really my North Star was to run a business. I'm an operator at my heart and that's really what I love to do. And I just realized over the past couple of years or so in the process of writing this book, I've sort of arrived at my North Star because I own more than just finance. I own our IT and legal functions. Our consumer business reports into me as well. I own our corporate strategy function. We have a super tight-knit executive team. We're fairly young. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm already running the company with the other execs. So uh, I feel like I'm you know, sort of living the dream, so to speak.
1: Just dialing down on the North Star thing, you defined your North Star ten, about 10 years into your career. Why did you decide to do that at that point? And then, and, and then how did your career change after that? Yeah, I, I would
2: say in hindsight, I would encourage you to define your North Star at 18 right? Don't don't wait until, it, do, it, do it at 14, right? Do it at whatever age, because you, you can redefine it. I actually just went through a process of redefining mine because I, as I shared, I feel like in a lot of ways I've reached where I wanted to go. And so I want a new North Star and I just put it up on my personal website. Like my North Star now is to build and develop high performing teams that are driving transformative societal impact. That's, that's like really what excites me, like what I want to you know accomplish when I think about like the legacy that I want to leave behind. the the key there is that, you know, you can redefine it, but you've got to have one defined to start with. When I did that 10 years in, it totally changed how I thought about my own career trajectory and also how other people looked at me. So up until that point, my mental model was keep your head down, work hard. Someone will notice, tap you on the shoulder and come to you for the next job. And whether that person was in GE or a recruiter or whatever, it didn't really matter. I just figured someone would notice and serendipity would just happen, right? And it doesn't work that way, right? Like you've really got to define for yourself. It's like you wouldn't get in your car without an idea of where you want to go. So many of us today have just become reliant on the navigation or Google Maps or whatever it is, but everyone's like driving towards a destination. Why wouldn't you operate the same with your career? For me, when I did that and I got very clear on, well, I want to run a business someday and let me work backwards from there. What do I need to do to get there? I wanted to be a CFO You know, I wanted to have gotten both like public and private company experience. Because I did that, I got really picky about what opportunities I took. So after that happened, I got approached by different recruiters about, you know, different jobs and they were a little bit more money. It was, you know, a better title. And I probably would have taken that had I not defined my North Star. But because I did, I said, you know what? No, this is not going to help me. This is like a lateral move or maybe it's not necessarily a lateral, but it's not getting me to where I want to go. So I'm just going to turn it down. And some people actually told me I was crazy. Like, look, the job you're in now and the one that you're looking at, these these are really far apart. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not helping me get to where I want to go.
1: Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Um, You talk a lot about uh, in the book, the importance of building a team that you can trust, that's resilient um, and how you got to that point learning that that's, that's important. Can you talk about how, how you assess uh, someone as they're trying to join your team? There are
2: lots of things I look for, but there are four in particular that I allude to in the book as uncoachable traits. And I've just learned over the course of my career that you're going to waste your time trying to coach these things. There, there are traits that you can coach, like if somebody needs help with communication or prioritization, or maybe they just get nervous in public speaking, or, right? There's a whole host of things that you can coach people on. Then I've learned there are things that you can't coach because I've tried. I've tried to coach these things and you just can't make someone someone they're not. And that's a strong sense of integrity a sense of accountability, a sense of collaboration that they prioritize the team's success over their own, and then uh, a very strong sense of positivity. And that last one, I sometimes catch some flack for because when I say it, people will say, well, you know what? I'm a realist. I'm not necessarily an optimist or you know, or negative. To me, what I've learned is that I, I don't personally agree with that. I really believe that the on the spectrum of positivity and negativity, it comes to a very fine point. And you tend to roll one way or the other when you're faced with adversity. And that's where it really becomes important when you personally or you know, you as a team are facing adversity. Are you gonna start to gripe and complain and point fingers and blame others? Or are you gonna band together and are you gonna maybe see the opportunity, you know, in the in the challenge and, and find a way to grow? So those traits I look for when I hire people, I ask questions along those lines and um, and people have said, "Hey, well, you're giving your interview secrets away now." And it's like I, I can tell when the answer is genuine, and you know when it's not. Yeah. But I, you know, I look for that. And and look, I don't always get it right. It's also part of the job is once you've made a hire and people have convinced you that maybe they have those traits, but then they end up not having the traits. We'll like manage them out pretty quickly. The other thing to keep in mind is even if someone has those traits, it doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be successful. Those traits yeah. are just table
1: stakes, right? You also have to be a, a really good performer as well. I was just kind of a. I was really interested in the book at when I got to the end that it was basically, you know, we've known each other for tw- our entire lives, but the yeah. you know, last twenty years we've probably only seen each other maybe once a year on average, and so uh, yeah, I knew what you were doing in in your life or your your adult life, but I didn't really know the details, and and I I found it fascinating that it was like a a play-by-play of what you were doing since college. And, and I really liked that. I was like, oh, I wish more of my friends wrote books like this so I could know like what they did in their day job and what they've been up to. When you look back at Jawad at whatever, 20, 21, 22, graduating from Holy Cross, what advice would you give him now based on all your experience in the last 20 years? There's So there's some lessons that I learned along the way that I
2: really needed to learn that I don't know I would have necessarily been open to listening to at the time. I just yeah. you know, had a lot of confidence in myself. Uh, I think that'd be the first thing is just just be open-minded and don't assume that you have all the answers. And I see it a little bit today when I talk to some you know folks that are earlier in their careers. And one of the things I really believe is, is valuable is for people to get an MBA. And I think an MBA is pretty valuable in yeah. pretty much any field you go in. You don't have to be in corporate America. It's just a really important thing to have. And a lot of younger folks, don't want to hear it. They don't want to do it. They don't think it's important. Like the value of MDA
1: is getting devalued a little bit. Oh, it changed my life when I got my MBA. Yeah, completely gave me the toolbox to tackle any sort of problem. So yeah.
2: Yep. Yeah. I, I remember having this conversation with you and my my brother, who's a, a teacher for a long time, went and got right. his MBA as well. Um, but that's the, one of the first things I'd say is to just be open-minded and, you know, stop and think and, and listen to the people that have more experience, you know, and I would also say, to, to find and cultivate relationships. Don't just find the people, but really try, for, try to find a way to cultivate relationships with people who are going to be great mentors. Yeah. That's one of the big you know, factors for the success in my career is I had fantastic mentors. And you don't need a weekly or a monthly, you know, or even sometimes an annual one-on-one. You don't, in fact, need to always know your mentors, right? There are people that I learn from that I never even met. Like I just read Bob Iger's book. Bob Iger was the CEO oh, of Disney right? for a long time. Yeah. And you know, a lot of his lessons in the, in the book, like I you know, I, I can learn from those and I can reflect on those and incorporate them in my own life without having ever met him.
1: I felt like early on in my career, I had some horrible mentors, but I didn't realize it at the time. How do you figure out whether your mentors or advisors are, are good?
2: Yeah, that is a great question. Asad, I learned that the hard way a little bit. And I, and I talk about this in the book where I just assumed the feedback I was getting and the people I work for, they were all qualified to give that feedback. And what I realized is like, no, actually, I, and I talk, what I talk about in the book is this idea of a, of a filter versus a funnel. So think about your traditional funnel. Most people will view feedback as like a funnel where they'll get it from wherever they can. And then they'll synthesize and process all of it and try to act on it it should really be more like your mental model for feedback should really be more of a, like a filter where you decide what you let through. Yeah. It's, you should listen to it all. You should be open to it all because feedback is a gift and you want as many data points as possible, but then you have to have the ability to sit back and think about, okay, is this person, you know, biased? Are they, is there some other motive that they have? You know, are they maybe projecting a little bit? Is some of what they're telling you something that they're struggling with, right? You should definitely listen to all the feedback, but, uh, that's something I had to learn the hard way that not all feedback is good feedback, right? And you want a, a good model for it too because if, if you're working for a manager that can be a little bit demeaning, if you start to adopt those behaviors, oh yeah, then the people working for you are gonna pick up on that and they're not gonna view you as the type of leader that they wanna work for.
1: Yeah, it took me a long time to unlearn bad behaviors early in my career. And I'm just learning now because I've had such amazing, amazing managers in the last couple of years, you know, how to manage better. Um, and it's made, made all the difference. Um, you once had a manager tell you there's something wrong with the way you learn. Tell us about that story. Yeah.
2: You know, I didn't, I didn't actually mention this in a book. I had, I had um, two managers tell me that. No way. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. One, one of them was was uh, fairly recently. <laughs> in the last few years, I was in a, a pretty big job. Uh, not not here at Axon. But for me, I just would listen to feedback and just sort of figure out how can I make myself successful? And how do I how am I trying to how do I get to where I'm trying to go? And that that is really what I focused on more than anything. This idea that there's something wrong with the way you learn. Like, I, I think even that, though, was important for me to hear because There was something I wasn't giving the manager. There was something I wasn't explaining correctly. And I I actually think like not getting offended by that was really helpful to me because one of the most important things I did was to not get offended by feedback and stop and think, okay, this person is telling me something. Maybe I don't agree with it. Maybe I don't agree with how they said it, right? But perception is reality. And there's something here that I'm not doing correctly or as well as I could be. So let me think about that dispassionately, unemotionally, let me think about that and try to improve on it. And I'd be lying if I, you know, said like, I just, yeah, all the naysayers, I just ignored them and I got to where I am because of it. No, I actually am where I am because I listened to that feedback and because I got more concise or more effective in my communication. So
1: did it hurt when you heard that? like, uh, I imagine that that, especially twice, I mean, you know, what advice do you give to people to that? just their feelings are hurt or they just can't hear it or, or what it is. You know, I, I, I think I've been in that position many times in my career, in my personal and professional life, you, you hear that feedback and you kind of shut down. What, what advice do you have for, for people that, for that to sink in?
2: Yeah. It's really important to stay focused on your North star. So, you know, I talk about the North star and defining it. It's one of the first questions. Actually, it is the first question I ask everybody in the interview. Tell me, tell me your North star, where are you headed? And you'd be surprised how few people have actually thought through that, at least to the point where they can very clearly and concisely articulate it. Once you've done that for yourself and you know where you're headed, just stay focused on how you get there. Right. And I would say this is a really important question you're asking, Asad, because it's one of the most important skills that you need to be successful at a certain level.
1: Yeah.
2: Because at a certain level, everyone's, you know, talented and capable. And they've had great experiences, right? And they've got the resume. And you'd be surprised, like how many people just self destruct or just self sabotage because they get offended or they, you know, are emotional or whatever the case might be. And all the other stuff just goes. away. It doesn't matter. Like if you're a great leader, if you're a great orator, and you, you're just fantastic at what you do, but you can't control your temper or you get offended, you know, at the slightest thing, like your career is going to be pretty short lived. Yeah. And I. I've seen that in other companies where other execs will do that and just end up, people end up, like I said, self-sabotaging or self-destructing. It's important because the higher up you go, the more likely you are to work with very strong type A personalities. It's not just the other execs that I work with, but a lot of our investors, You know, these are big institutional investors. They're not wallflowers either. And they've got pretty strong opinions. You just got to stay cool and calm. And one of the ways you learn to do that is when you're getting feedback that maybe is tough for you to hear and just process it and think about it. Like I said, just, you know, very dispassionately. And that muscle,
1: that the act of doing that is going to serve you really well, the higher up you go. You're listening to my conversation with Jawad Asin, author of What They Didn't Tell Me. Up after the break, we'll hear about his views on increasing diversity in the workplace. Stay tuned. You're listening to American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Jawad Asin, author of What They Didn't Tell Me, his first book about how to become a resilient leader and build teams you can trust. I asked Jawad to share what it's been like to be a Muslim on leadership teams in corporate America.
2: You, you know, I, I talk a little bit in, in the book about an incident where someone asked about my beliefs, and you know that was a little uncomfortable situation. But it was it was a one off. It was you know one person. Uh, by and large. I've been fortunate to have worked in situations like GE is a, is a meritocracy, Axon is a very open and you know embracing culture. The private equity company that I that I worked at, they were, you know the the owners of that company, the PE firm didn't have a ton of diversity, but you know I didn't I never felt like they were, you know looking at me differently or treating me differently because I wasn't you know a white male that went to Harvard or Stanford it's you, know, you look at these private equity firms. A lot of those folks look like that, and it's it's what I found is that it's it's not malicious. And you know, you talk about this idea of there being a system and a system being stacked against you, and like my opinion is that that isn't true. Like the system implies that there's some type of governing body that's like coordinating every like coordinating all this behind the scenes, and that's just not true. I think it's just I think it's simpler than that. It's just human nature. People hire people that they're comfortable with, and increasingly or just by and large, people hire people that look like them and went to school at similar schools or have similar backgrounds. And maybe they grew up playing tennis or squash together, whatever it is, right? It's not that they're like, "Well, I don't want to hire a brown or a black person." It's just they just don't know those people, right? And frankly, this is changing now. like you and I have talked about this you know with with uh, young Muslims who were historically pushed into these careers, right, like doctors or engineers or lawyers, and now they're branching out beyond that. That's going to take some time to work its way through, right? And you're going to start to see more of those, you know, different candidates. And uh, now, hopefully, you'll start to see more Verizon, you know, in other in other jobs. But that's the one thing I would would say is to not get hung up on this idea that you're going to be treated differently. Sure, I, I don't want to I don't want to just assume that or just imply that the world is colorblind and people aren't going to view you differently because you look or pray different or whatever the case might be. But ultimately, if you're fantastic at what you do and you really work on yourself. And you know you listen to that feedback, and you make the investment in your yourself and in your teams, and you're seen as a great leader. There are going to be no shortage of opportunities for you.
1: You know, uh, in my in my day job, uh, I work with a lot of startups that are looking for investment, and and we've been talking a lot recently about how diverse teams are more successful. All the data shows that more you know the more diverse you are, the the more successful that you are. And and um, so I find it interesting that that still. Investment money and and leadership at public companies across the the country uh, aren't diverse, you know. And and if the ultimate goal of most corporations is to, you know, maximize uh, profit for investors, don't you think that they would be more proactive about bringing diversity to their teams? Yeah,
2: and and that's the key word there is being you know proactive, right? That's that's the key. It's like okay, fine, this situation exists in my last uh, in my last gig, okay. Uh, at this private equity company, we'd get called back to to the headquarters and we'd give meeting or presentations, and we'd get to meet some of the other portfolio companies. And once a year we would do a dinner. and this dinner was at a really nice restaurant in LA. that's where they were based. And so you'd be in a room with probably like sixty to 70 people from all the different portfolio companies, the leadership of the private equity firm. and I'd look around every year. And a couple of years I was the only minority in the room. And a couple of times I was you know there maybe there was a female, but not a lot of diversity but these people weren't again they weren't like malicious i never felt like they were racist like you you know we've we've certainly talked to uh, or interacted with people where we grew up that you know maybe maybe aren't very inclusive I didn't, yeah, sure. I didn't feel that there i didn't necessarily feel that in that environment but the fact remains that it was a very homogenous environment and so what do you do with that information i think that's where you've got to really um, think about in in that private equity firm they have talked about like how do we get more diverse. And, and also the other thing is diversity. So I want to take a minute and talk about this actually. It's this really important yeah. because the thing I caution people about is just going out and hiring a bunch of people that have different skin color or different, you know, sexual preference or whatever it is, yeah. because all diversity means is just a variety of things, a variety of something. So by itself, diversity is meaningless. What you really want to strive for is a plurality because A plurality means a diverse group of people working together towards a common goal. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, how there was this, you know, one group I worked with that was fairly toxic and someone just threw in a a woman to be the manager of this group and it just didn't work. They just rejected her. And if you just have a situation where like, you're like, okay, I've got a fairly homogenous company now and I just want to add a bunch of diversity. Well, if you don't actually take the time to make sure everyone is aligned and everyone's working towards the same goal, then... You're just going to have discord, right? And in some cases, you're probably better off just having a more homogenous you know, yeah. workforce that is aligned, but you've got to really put the work in to make sure that people are, are working together towards a common goal. And that's why I like the plurality definition because with plurality, diversity is table stakes, right? You can't have plurality without diversity, but it's not just diversity. You've also got to be aligned. That's
1: really interesting. I haven't thought about it that that way. You you your part of your role is also you're the diversity and inclusion officer for Axon. What kind of stuff have you been implementing or trying to implement within within the company?
2: Yeah, we've started a few affinity groups within the company. We started up uh, Axon allies uh, for LGBTQ employees. We started up the women at Axon group. Just last year, we started up Mosaic which is the uh, affinity group for, for Black employees at Axon. And we've been spending a lot of time with them, getting the group started, giving them really a forum and a platform to share their thoughts, concerns, questions. We just hired a head of diversity. Actually, the the acronym is uh, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, JEDI. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Axon's really big on sci-fi. We've got a big sci-fi bent. So. so anyways, the, the head of this this group is uh, Lara McLeod, and she joined us from um, from Zillow, and she's just been a fantastic hire. She's been doing this for for quite a bit of time, and she's bringing like, a whole new level of sophistication to how we're thinking about diversity and really not just checking a box. That's the one thing we were very intentional about. We didn't want this to be a check-the-box exercise. We also hired Regina Holloway. She came from the policing project. She's the head of community engagement and community impact. She's working with us as like sort of the liaison between us and some of the communities that law enforcement solve, because we've got a great relationship with law enforcement. And one thing that became apparent last year, post George Floyd and Breonna Taylor is that we've also you know got to reach out to the communities as well. And we've got to find a way to serve as a bit of a platform between communities uh, and law enforcement. And that's what her group does. So yeah, it's, it's one of the, one of the great things about Axon, like I said, like rather than shy away from some of these challenges, we've, we've really embraced them head on.
1: Yeah. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about how important uh, to, to me it's a no-brainer that that police uh, should be wearing body cams at all times. But I guess what, what is the pushback that you hear from people about not doing that? It's
2: increasingly less and less. Initially law enforcement wasn't really looking to wear body cameras. And it was after all the you know the incident happened in, in Ferguson, right, where this started to take off. And what officers started to see was that behavior changes on both sides of the camera right? Not only is the officer aware that they're being recorded and they're more likely to follow the policies, but people on the other end of the camera, I I saw a video of this uh, incident once where the uh, police were called to a a residence for a domestic dispute. They get there and this woman is just apoplectic and she's screaming and she's saying, get your hands off me. And obviously the officers aren't touching her. They aren't doing anything, but she's screaming like, I'm going to file a rape charge against you, like all this stuff. And the officer is trying to get her attention. And he says, ma'am, ma'am, I want you to know this is a body camera and you're being recorded and she just immediately calms down. That's an extreme example, but generally speaking when people know they're being recorded, like behavior changes on both sides. And a lot of the objections now are sort of moot like there's there's no good reason not to have a body camera. Right? There's no better there's no better record of an incident than than the body camera footage. And it just helps in so many cases, it helps not only in the moment when both parties know they're being recorded, but from a training standpoint, it's also great for officers to be able to go back and, you know, review an incident and get better training as well. So that's, and that's one of the reasons why it's been so
1: ubiquitous. Yeah, sure. There was an incident that um, I read about with one of your employees getting pulled over in Georgia. And, and I was wondering if you could share that story. So yeah, in that
2: incident, what happened was um, our employee was driving and was pulled over by a police officer who was wearing our body camera. And so this officer comes up to him and and starts talking with him and he notices that her body camera is not on. And he asked her to turn it on and, and she wouldn't do it. And so he's, you know, being a sales engineer, was able to activate it remotely. And then she realized what, what exactly was going on. He told her, I work at Axon and had asked her to turn on the body camera. And when when she finally realized that he was who he said he was, like she apologized, you know, what he was saying was like, "I'm, you know, I'm a young black man. Like I have the ability to turn on her body camera, but most young black men who get pulled over don't
1: yeah sure I mean that 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 power dynamic switched immediately and or you know at least shifted a little bit and it's just such a powerful story I'm, gl- I'm glad you shared it. so the other thing in there
2: that um, I'm really excited about that we're working on are all the analytics in the software to help highlight these you know these incidents where that officer should have been wearing or should have had the body camera on and they didn't that's the kind of thing that our software will now flag and it leads to better outcomes from a training standpoint And yeah. one of the things we see with officers, when you when you go back and you look at all the officers over the past few years that have been in these high profile incidences where they've, you know, murdered people, quite frankly, in some cases, you go back and look at their history. They are repeat habitual offenders. They repeatedly don't follow company or agency policies. And our software is really highlighting that and hoping hopefully helping identify those um, you know, those
1: situations early. How much work does Axon do to train police departments across the country? It must be a, a lot of of what happens. Yeah, it's a big part of. Uh, our taser business, for
2: sure, where we not only sell the, the the taser weapon, but really, there's a whole suite of training that we've developed. And the training has expanded beyond the physical realm. We've also developed VR training. So we have uh, oh, wow. we have a set of empathy training situations we've developed for the oculus headset. So we'll ship that in many cases with the taser. So you not only get the taser, but you also get the oculus headset. and then we'll do the the VR training with the officers that are really meant to help deescalate a situation. And put yourself in the other person's shoes and think about, or maybe even experience part of what they're experiencing if they're having some type
1: of a mental breakdown. Yeah, for sure. I um, my final question: um, Have you ever used the taser? I have fired <laughs> the taser. Uh,
2: we have um, a few different versions of it, and there's a new version of it we're actually working on that's uh, just amazing. And we've we've talked about it publicly, like this idea that we do have another weapon in the pipeline. This, this next one, I really think, is going to help make the Bullet Ops lead. It's, it's going to go a long way towards that. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. And then as far as being tased myself, I have not. I actually was going to when I first started, and I've had some issues with my back, and our general counsel stopped me from, from being <laughs> tased. But
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well, Jawad uh thank you so much for joining American Muslim Project. Really appreciate your time time with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Asad. Good to see you. My interview with Jawad Asin was recorded in January 2021, the same month his book, What They Didn't Tell Us, was released. We'll have links to the book in our show notes, along with everything else that we talked about. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking to Afroz Khan, who is a city councilor in the town of Newburyport, Massachusetts. And as a reminder, we're doing our first giveaway uh, promotion. Check out our website for details. But we're just asking you all to write and review American Muslim Project on Apple Podcasts. And if you do and you send us that review on Twitter or over email, you could win some cool prizes. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaleon Media. Today's show was produced, researched, and edited by Lindsay Gamble, Mark Anato, and me, Asad Butt. The music on our show was created by Simon Hutchinson. You can follow us online at AmericanMuslimProject.com.